You're listening to Joe Dalton on Dublin South FM, crossing the Rubicon. Welcome, folks, to another week of the Joe Dalton Show. You know, each week I like to speak to people around the world, influencers, people that can make a difference, people that have great stories. And this week, a very good friend of mine, an old friend of mine, uh, is Tom Murphy. Tom has Tom was a pro. And I have to say was, I'm not sure, he's, I, I think he's too old to be fighting still, but a pro <laughs> MMA fighter. He's, um, he had a great, great history in, in the profession. And then from there, he's an entrepreneur as well. He has a restaurant up in Vermont in the US. And he also is part of something which is very close to my heart. And I have spoke about this organization and many times with people in Ireland. And it's called Sweethearts, to he- Sweethearts and Heroes. And it's about bullying and it's about introducing kids to offer them ways, strategy, techniques to stop bullying or if if they see bullying um, going on in a school. We know in America that it is, you know, people carry knives and guns into some schools. We haven't got to that level here in Ireland or in Europe, but there is an element of bullying. And one of the things I want to speak to Tom about today as well, a clatter of other stuff as well, is about bullying in the workplace, because that is something that is hushed on. You know, you're an adult, you can't be bullied. And that causes so much anxiety within companies, organizations as well, especially with COVID. So, Tom Murphy, welcome to uh, Dublin South FM. Yeah, well, thanks, man. And um, I appreciate it. And we do go way back um, and I couldn't be more excited to be here. Um, I'm glad you finally mentioned my last name. So I hope I have an in with your listeners. My accent isn't quite as groovy as yours, um, but my family hails from uh, the Tipperary area of Ireland. That's one uh, thing on my bucket list is to get there. Um, but um, I do take a lot of pride in my my heritage. heritage the old country the old, the old country. country yeah the old country it, it's fascinating as well because you know with this show like we have a big listenership in ireland but you know one of the biggest listenerships as well from the show is america yeah mm. yeah the, wow. the show is listened to in 100 countries and the top three is the usa England and Ireland are the three big huh. ones. Yeah. Wow. So, so you're going to someone, someone down the road is going to be listening to you. So, Tom, tell me, I want to speak about your your experience jumping from a pro MMA fighter, and like with here at the moment, as you know, we have Conor McGregor who is sure. a pro fighter, and a guy that was put on a pedestal in Ireland and then has been taken down because of the antics when that, that happened to him or he went through when he got that money and the power from it. And he, he has sort of been taken off a pedestal here because some of the stuff that's happened. Um, I, I think John Kavanagh visited you at one stage, did he, his trainer? Did he spend some time up with you at some time? Uh, he may have spent a little bit of time at TriStar. I spent most of my time at TriStar um, with the likes of George St. Pierre. And um, my coach is Faraz Sahabi and uh, spent a lot of time. So a lot of people came through that camp. Um, yeah, yeah. One, of the, it, one of the things 
that I love what you said. You said, you know, I hate fighting. Remember when I met you when we were speaking yeah. about it? It says I hate fighting, but I go in with the aggression. You know, and, yeah. and that is the difference. And what was the, what was it like like being a pro MMA fighter? Was there a was it part of an ego driven part as well, or was it just a sport for yourself? Well, Joe, let me answer it like this. Um, I've been wrestling my whole life. And from the time I could walk, I, uh, my dad pushed me down and certainly not in any abusive way. But, you know, I just had was programmed to put my hands on other people. And I don't mean that in some kind of in, um, uh, you know, a, a malicious sense. Uh, for me, I was just however my body's wired, uh, my psychology, um, uh, the way I've developed, I just like being physical. Um, so I wrestled my entire life. Uh, when I was done wrestling in college, I just wasn't ready to stop. Most guys are ready to stop, uh, move on with life. I wasn't. And I'm a bit of a training junkie. I'd rather train than compete, to be honest with you. I just, I'm a, I'm a training junkie. Uh, so I just found myself in the very early days of this whole uh, mixed martial arts craze, um, making my way around the country, training at different gyms. And one thing led to another. I found myself in a couple of competitions. I found myself on a pay-per-view card in Cleveland. Uh, then I found myself on the Ultimate Fighter 2 show, which is the early days. Um, and then I found myself with a little contract with the UFC. Um, but for me, it was just a, I call it my hook for young people. And when I look back on it, I think in terms of the cosmic forces, the only reason I did it was to be able to connect with young people, because when I play a couple of minutes of mixed martial arts in a giant auditorium of a thousand students and the lights are out and there's loud music and then I come running down the aisle and kids are kind of like, we're here to talk about bullying and we just saw that on the screen. And now this guy runs down the aisle. What's the first thing he's going to say? And the first thing I say and I've been doing it for 10 years, over 2 million students face-to-face. -face. The first thing I say is I hate fighting. And it's kind of this delicious irony, I call it, where it doesn't make sense to a young person's brain because they see that on the screen. That kind of has epitomized what Hollywood would say bullying is um, or something associated with bullying. And then I go into an explanation. And I say, listen, my responsibility, I say, we're not going to talk about mixed martial arts for the next hour. I said, but it is my responsibility that whenever I show young people what I like to do in my free time, it's my responsibility to educate you. And what better place than within the walls of education? And I go into the difference between fighting and competition and fighting. And, uh, and I'll let you jump in here. Fighting is to use violent physical means such as blows, fists, or weapons to overpower someone. I don't see any violence in mixed martial arts. Unfortunately, a lot of people do. I see it as a very aggressive sport, but violence is perpetrated on people outside of their participation or, or their will. I've never perpetrated violence on another human being. I always compete with people that are willing to compete with me and a lot of them are my friends. I say, I love punching my friends in the face, but 
but I'd never punch a stranger in the face. But, but that, that's it is, you know, with mixed martial arts, it originates from the great Kung Fu movies. And before that, it was the Westerns. And it was all that, you know, feeling of, you know, I'm the hero. And that's where it sort of all steamed from. And like, I remember the days of mixed martial arts way before it was it had its popular scene now when you had the guys like the tank do you remember the tank oh yeah and, david yeah, abbott yeah yeah and you know that's when we were watching it that was the early 90s you know yeah. that's how far back it goes um and with yourself on it moving from there but just, I just want to jump back to your childhood. You, you know, your parents, I believe, were, did they take in foster kids as well? So did you have that sort of ingrained caring as well as you were growing up? Because the person I know, Tom, is, is you're like a gentle joint, you're, you're, you care. Well, you know, I have a very interesting past and I just started speaking about it a couple of years ago. You know, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. I was talking to my dad, um, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and he said in 1979, he made $8,000. And there's, he has three biological children. Uh, we all live together, my mom. Uh, but my parents, um, Irish Catholic family, um, Philadelphia. And um, uh, my parents started a mission home in our house. And we always had people. And this is another book I could write. I mean, I could write, you could write one big pages. Book and pages on the people that came in and out of our house. And most of the stories were very challenging. Um, most of them don't have, the, the last chapter in each one of those books is very sad um, because most of them ended in tragedy because of what those people faced in the trauma, especially as, ch as children that they went through and never being able to unload that baggage. But really for me, I watched my parents um, and, you know, it baffles me how my parents gave to so many people unconditionally. I mean, there was a year, Joe, where when I was nine, my parents gave their only biological son his bedroom away to someone that needed it more than I did. And I slept in a bathtub for a year. And wow. um, that's the environment I was raised in. You know, and then fast forward, you know, I become a teenager and self-absorbed like I'm supposed to. And I get involved in wrestling. And, you know, I really didn't look back. And honestly, when you're in school, you don't really tell your friends that your parents have homeless people living with you. Like that's no, not that I was ever cool. embarrassed about it. But, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't something you just told people about. But as I came full circle in life and you know, I matured, I guess, um, you know, I think that empathetic circuitry was being fired in my brain. So now as I meet young people, I seem to gravitate towards young people that have very similar challenges to the people that I grew up with. And so it's very easy for me to connect with kids. And you mentioned something, you said, you guys talk about bullying and we do. I think that's a, a bit of a, a mislead. People say, oh, you guys are the bully guys. Uh, my speaking partner and I, um, it was a fascinating story. <clears throat> um, but truly, Joe, we talk more about um, the real enemy and the war that we're in. And that battle is against hopelessness. 
you know, kids don't make destructive decisions based on bullying. That may be one thing that leads a kid to feeling hopeless, but it truly bullying doesn't cause a kid to hurt themselves or someone else. It's hopelessness. Well, well okay. So just so the audience know, sweethearts and heroes, you call into schools and colleges and you talk to children about about bullying it, there's there's right. a deeper meaning behind it but it's about bullying how to how to spot a bully how to be not to be a bully and how to protect someone that is being bullying where did that come from where did that idea idea come from was, was it a was it a case of we need to do something this is spiraling out of hand what's going on in the usa at the moment in america and we need to do something about this I think it's more the latter of the three because you said kids that get bullied, kids that are bullies. I don't really know what that means. I certainly may have had some immature brain moments um, as a kid and did things that were inappropriate, but I don't think I ever really bullied anyone. I don't think um, I was ever really bullied. I certainly had kids treat me the wrong way, but I certainly fit into the category of the bystander someone on the outside. And we know that kids that are mistreated, 96% of the time, those incidents are never caught by adults or even reported. 96% of the time, yet 85% of the time, there's someone present. And if I were to ask you, Joe, in a, a continent away, you know, across the pond, if I were to ask you, what was the name of the kid, first name of the young person, when you were in school 20, 30 years ago, who was not treated the right way. I laugh. I wish it was that. You could, I wish it was, add a few years onto that. Okay. <laughs> I, was being, I was being kind. But what was that kid's first name? And was he too tall? Was he too short? Did he smell? Did his parents not have a lot of money? Was his father in prison? I've yet to find a human being on planet Earth that I've talked to that can't name that kid almost like that. In the blink of an eye, you can still remember that kid's name. And the reality is you didn't do too much to help that kid. Now you might've done one or two things, but you never did anything to really change that kid's state. And it wasn't just the bullying that was affecting this young person. He probably had a real challenging time at home in the community. And then you add bullying on top of it. But the truth is most adults are never going to see that kid being mistreated. But every student in that school knows where it happens, when it happens, why it happens, and who it happens to. And they really don't know what to do. And that's where we come in. We, we say there's two reasons that kids don't jump into action. That's the, it's the idiom that every kid knows. It's what heroes do. They jump into action. They save people. And we know there's two main reasons. And one of them is they feel silly or ridiculous. And we do a tremendous amount of work in the world of vulnerability. And number two, kids don't really have strategies. When I ask most kids, what do you do when you see someone not being treated the right way? The, be the best most kids can come up with is uh, tell a teacher. But the truth is they really don't know what to do. And we train kids for everything else. You know, when it comes to education and academics, we put them through space repetitive practice. And one of the largest things that we do is we take we set up drills for kids. We came up with something called a bully drill. And we actually, using 
the science of play. And there's a tremendous amount of play science out there that that's where mammals learn to transition successfully from childhood into adulthood is through self-directed, self-controlled play. That looks like this since the 1950s, right? It's a terrible decline. Um, but that's one of the things that we do, man, is we spend a lot of time giving kids strategies and not just telling them, but showing them and letting them practice these strategies while working on things like vulnerability. It's, it's interesting because I think a lot of it, it comes up with kids being, you know, being conditioned not to, you know, the grown up, you know, it's, oh, if you tell the teacher or rather don't tell tales or whatever it be, but, but then it comes to a, there's something that happens at some sort of age that it's, you know, there's that conditioning and it, I don't know, is watching TV, is it reading magazines, is it, you know, the, the stuff that, that they're programming subconsciously in their mind that changes them to go, oh, well, it's not happening to me, so I'm just turning, turning and walking away. And the, with, with the trials, like when we had Kung Fu kids, you know, you'd get a big ball and you'd, you'd put, you know, stinky or um fart face you'd ask them to say name so give me a name they go fart face and the other kids would laugh and you go you know bubble breath or whatever and and you'd stick them on another big um yoga yoga balls yeah. and they'd be punching and you roll the ball between over to them and they punch the ball away and you go what are words they're just bouncing off you and another one was well you put two kids in a circle and you get the two of them, one is the bully or, and one isn't. And you get the kid to shout at the one of the kids. And he, you have to teach him to walk outside that circle. But if you didn't teach him, he would stay in that circle and be sure. shouted at and not step outside it. Why didn't you do that? Because I had to stand my ground. Mm. So you teach them these things, which you shouldn't be going around schools doing this. They should be taught into schools from your. I'm not saying you shouldn't be going around. It's it's it's. I got it's you. A, yeah, but it's it's this should be taught in schools to recognize what's going on. So, well, I think a lot, I think a lot, Joe's even take a step back from that. As I mentioned, this self directed, self controlled play, and I don't want to get hung up on just this one topic. But yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. when when kids play, um, they practice these things. And, you know, there's some great research that came out of the Holocaust. And that sounds like a lot of great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Epiphanies have come out of the Holocaust and things we've learned to it. Obviously, nothing great came out of it. Um, but, you know, kids during the Holocaust would play these games. Um, they had one called Poke the Corpse. And if you just say that out loud in front of teachers, they're like, Poke the Corpse? That's terrible. Uh, well, not really, because when you have a young brain and play, teaches kids how to deal with difficult situations and in a, in a stress-free environment. So they'll have one buddy lay on the ground and somebody else will grab a stick. And I actually will do this in schools and, you know, to demonstrate this and you lay down and, and I poke you in the side. And when you start laughing, you lose. And then somebody else tries and somebody else tries. And the reason kids do that is because eventually they're going to be faced with a corpse, you know, a dead body, and they're going to have to walk over and see if it's alive or it's dead. Now that's terrifying, but if a kid can practice that beforehand, before it actually happens, 
And that's why we have gravitated to play and developing drills for kids that are very difficult situations. Like if I tell a kid to go sit with a kid that stinks in a socially charged situation, you think that kid's going to be able to do that just because I tell him to do that? Like, that's a really bad idea. Think about it like this. What if all of education happened like this? Let's say you're a math teacher and I say to you, okay, Joe, you're going to explain a math problem to a kid one time. You're never going to let them practice that math problem. Then you're going to slap them on the back and say, good luck. I'll see you at the test. Any person alive, any adult alive would say that's ridiculous. You can't teach a kid that way. But you as an adult will say to a kid all the time, why don't you go help someone that's different? Why don't you go help that kid that's not being treated the right way? What are you doing? You're doing the same thing. You're telling them once or twice. You're slapping them on the back. Then they're going into a socially charged situation, a cafeteria, the back of a locker room, a school bus. You think they're really going to be able to execute that um, just because you told them to do that? Like, that's a ridiculous thing for a young person when they're craving this connection with their peers. And now they're just going to run in front of everyone and do that. No, they're not. That's why you got to practice these things. It's, it's interesting. You know, like small children, you put them somewhere and before, you know, and there's other children there that don't speak the same language. Say you go on holiday and they're all, and the, the kids, I've seen it with my own kids playing, none of them speak the same language. But they don't even the have to speak the same language. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. At what age does that change? You know, we talk about show me the, show me, give me the boy and I'll show you the man up to the age of seven. And, what where does that switch come on that you know doubt and fear and the anxiety and i'm worried about what other people think when, when does that all change unfortunately joe it's younger and younger today um because of things like play have been removed from kids uh jonathan heights work coddling of the american mind is brilliant uh if you haven't read it it's, it's just a great read he's a great professor and talks about um things like this uh you know, I think there's a natural progression for it. I talk, there's a, one of my favorite books, uh, if any of your listeners have teenagers and they're struggling. The guy's name is John Medina. And John Medina is one of the great brain researchers of our times. And uh, if you like, he'll read the book himself on Audible if you're an auditory learner. Um, and it's a really fun book too, because he puts a lot of pop culture stuff into it. And it's an easy read, but yeah. it's called Attack of the Teenage Brain. And Medina says, regardless of some of that other stuff that's happening in our society and kids not personally connecting and kids not um, having conversations around dinner tables and stuff like that, regardless of all of that, there's this nasty little program that runs down here in the base of the brain when a kid hits about fifth grade, maybe even into sixth grade. And what happens? It runs. Um, they seek novel sensations. They become very disagreeable and prickly, right? Why? Be for their parents. Why? Because they're seeking entry into a new pack. Now, this happened 100,000 years ago. Mama would keep her kid, right, that's getting hair under his armpit and say, no, you can stay with me forever because that's what moms do in their tribe. But no, this kid in about the fifth or the sixth grade, somewhere in that time frame, says, I'm out of here. I'm going out into the bush 
and I'm going to potentially be eaten by lions and shot by arrows. And you can't stop that program from running. Why? Because the kid doesn't want to mate with you. The same thing happens today. You say, why did that kid who got these great moral and ethical lessons growing up and have really, you know, a good family situation, why did she get in that car and go with those kids? Because the same program runs in their brain and you can't stop it. So some of this is very natural, Joe. And then some of it is what we've done to our kids, you know, through technology and other things like that. Yeah, because... In a tribe, when the young boy comes, the asshole in the parents and they can't deal with him, they go to the elder of the tribe and the tribe goes, right, he is now a passage of a man. And he goes to a ceremony and that ceremony we see on movies, they might have to swim across this or be fight this person. There's some, some passage that they have to go through that makes them an adult. And you're right there that we are, our kids, you know, this is at 12, 13, those 13, you know, the age of 12, 13, that this happens. But in, in the societies that we have now, we go, Oh no, you're okay. You're okay. Instead of going, the community is gone. The, the family, we're all living away from each other. So that community is no longer there and the mother wants to hold the parents want to hold on to the child and there's where the issues you're dead right on that that is that is so right but it's also but we we're not we are no we no longer go right to our kids or you have to swim across that river and fight that line or (laughs) you know whatever we have to think of something that says right you're you're being a complete ass at the moment so it means that I should recognize that you're changing. But for that to happen, you and me have to have boundaries. But you also need to keep them safe because you don't want them to get in smoking, you know, taking drugs or drinking alcohol. And we know that what happens through life, that kids, there is casualties of war with children. Some commit suicide, some drugs, some mental issues. These are the casualties of growing up. So is there anything that, you know, do people say, oh, my God, my kid's an asshole. What do I do? Do you just let them be an asshole and or and just keep handing them money? Or do you kind of go, we need some boundaries here? Man, I wish I wish we do the answer to that one. I spend a lot of time talking to parents and educators. And, you know, where I always start with parents is I would say, um, what are I say, what are the five most important things in your life? And, you know, everybody, and I'll answer them for you, Joe, you'll say your, your children and, or your spouse are one and two, your belief system or your faith. Um, you can put those in any order that you want to. Right. And so there's most humans top three. Now, if your wife has a dog, she might put the dog in front of you. So don't be, a, if you go to number four, don't worry about it. Yeah, but. I'm, I'm the last of the pecking order <laughs> in this household, believe me. Right. So there's your top three. When you get to number four, Joe, on your list of the most important things in your life, you're going to say what your hobby is. Some people it's hiking and boating and fishing and somebody just has something they just love to do. And then when you get to number five on your list, you're going to say your career. Now, this is most people that I talk to. Now, if I were to ask you, 
So you got your children, your wife, uh, or your significant other, your belief system, your thing, or your hobby, and number five is your career. And when I um, ask you, most people, how long did you spend preparing for your career, number five on your list, before you got your career? And if I talk to a teacher, the answer is about 20 years between middle school, high school, undergraduate, graduate work. They've got about 20 years of training in before they got their career. And then I turn to most people and I say, okay, that's about accurate. Um, And then I say, how many years did you spend preparing for number one on your list before you got it, Joe, your children? And you're going to immediately kind of like clench your teeth. And I'm going to say, let me answer that for you. About nine months. You spent preparing for number one, your children, before you got them, right? And you'll kind of shamefully say, yeah, that's about right. Um, But you'll still tell me they're the most important thing in your life, way more important than your job that you spent 20 years preparing for before you got it, okay? Now, some people... I'll let you cut in here, but some people then will say to me, well, well, wait a minute, Tom, that's not fair. That's just what humans do. And I say, oh, really? Well, what was number four on your list? Like hiking, boating, yoga, because everybody's got their thing. And they're like, yeah, uh, yoga. I say, okay, how many videos on yoga did you watch last year? How much coaching did you get? How many books did you read? And we can compile this big list of the time and the effort that people put into their number four. And then I turn to them one more time and I say, how many videos on being a better father did you watch last year? How much coaching did you get? How many books did you read? And most people will just shrink because you'll still tell me your kids are the most important thing in your life, but you don't put time and effort into your development as a parent. And I think that's where we go wrong, Joe, to answer your question, is our own education, like parenting is a disaster. We just primarily do what was done to us by our own crappy parents, right? Because our parents were all screwed up. And then we combine that with the other crappy parenting skills that someone got from their crappy parents. And then we have all of these other environmental conditions that happen between the time we leave our crappy parents. And, and I'm not dissing anybody's parents, but most people don't want their kids to grow up and be like their parents, right? They well, just don't it, want that. Yeah. And I think, and you know, the reason why most people are like their parents, because that subconscious mind that you don't realize that your child from one to three is absorbing. Amen. And, and that cellular memory that they picked up of what you've done to them is inherited in them. And that's why you say you're like your mother or you're like your father. Oh, yeah. Like kids, if, if the funny part of it is when you have your first child, when you're feeding them and, you know, if you're giving them, you know, uh, powdered milk it's like you're dealing with radioactive so you're touching it and you hold it don't get it outside the bottle and if a bit falls on the ground you're panicking and you have to rewash and realize and sterilize everything and then when your fourth kid comes along you're basically just rinsing the, the bottle under the tap throwing it in and giving it to them you know so i, I just i just i didn't even <laughs> rinse it i just gave it to them yeah know. but but you'll be you fine know, it'll be fine but but what happens is, is and, you're, and you're dead right. I never really sort of looked at it that way. For me, it's my wife, my children. It's, it's my hobby is walking. 
Um, and then it's my career. My walking hobby is I just picked up a pair of boots and I walked. That's what I do. The, but I, I try all the time to be a better father because I don't want, and you were so right on that, I don't want to be, my father was good, he was okay, he had, he had you know, his moments like most of us, but I want to be a better person to my kids than he ever was to us, even though he was good. And I'm always speaking to my children, like I would sit down with children and says, if I get annoyed with you, it's not you, it's not your fault, it is my fault, and I apologize for, for that. But remember mm. this, as you grow up, it is never your fault. Now, they throw it mm. back at me now. It's not my fault, they say. You know, it's <laughs> yours. But, but I'm, I'm planting them in her seeds. Like Megan, who is seven, I say to her, you know, I have it ingrained her now. Who are you? What are you? And she now, after seven years, goes, I'm your happy, healthy, wealthy little girl. Because right. I've ingrained that into, and I'm working that on the on our younger sister as well. Wow! So it's it's kind of looking. I look at it as I want my kids to grow up with confidence. I want my kids to grow up and not have the demons or the negativity or the worry that I had to go on a journey for twenty years to remove. That I wish there was someone to show me early on and i'm trying that with my oldest son as well at the moment because if we can teach our kids at a young age to go none of that matters it's what you feel and hear matters they will live a wonderful precious gorgeous life well joe you, you know you're you couldn't be more correct um and i wish more people took that uh, perspective uh but unfortunately um you know, you hit something, you said something that I, I, I promise I won't jump down this rabbit hole because I could talk about the subconscious mind for literally hours. I, yeah, a lot of yeah. my reading, they say that most people's subconscious uh, minds make 96 to 97 percent of their conscious decisions every day. And Maxwell Maltz back in the 60s wrote a great book called Psycho Cybernetics. Brilliant book. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. And, you know, you're basically um the product of those early years and it's unchangeable. Like you, you almost, you can reprogram the subconscious, but it's very, very challenging. That yes. self image is burned into us. And when you can have a father that knows the value of apologizing to their child and they do without saying, but you should have done this, but just apologize when they can model that behavior it's so much more powerful. And then you'll get the child that will be able to grow up. And when he or she gets in a fight with their friends, they'll be able to say, I'm sorry. I was a jerk. I was in a bad mood. My boyfriend dumped me. I'm sorry for how I treated you because you modeled that behavior. So what you're saying, but I do want to ask you a question. You said something and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, you said my top, you said two, you said your wife before your children. I'm yeah. Put you on the spot yeah. with that one. No, yeah. Why did, you, why did you say that? Because I, people that know me, my, the day I married my wife was the best day of my life. And I, and I call her my beautiful wife and she is to this day. And I, the relationship that I have with her 
is very very special and if you look at equal it equal a lot of people say oh my firstborn and my kids and for me it's my wife mm. and then after my wife it's it, it is my kids because i know i know that i am only here at this moment to teach my children you know they have been lent to me and they have decided to be with me so i can teach them when they go out and be themselves mm. my wife will always be with me so even though the kids will leave the nest, my wife will be with me. And I think that's important in a relationship that a lot of people focus in on their kids and they forget about the partner. And that is where I think the, the nucleus of the family is very important. I also believe that it's important that we sit around the dinner table at least you know four or five times a week and talk at dinner because what's happened in our society with apartments especially over here the kitchens has just come a place for cooking and people are eating their dinner around the tv and i think that you know families that sort of stick together and talk at the dinner table as they grow older will have better relationships well um i'll, I'll make two quick comments uh, number one i don't talk about this too much publicly i have um but i always say that my wife is more important um it's been this way for almost 20 years is the most important thing in my life. So I have four kids. If they were in this hand and my wife was in this hand and they were both being dangled over a cliff. And then that's a horrible thought. Uh, but let's just say there's a bunch of fluffy marshmallows at the bottom um, just to ease that thought. And I had to let go of my four kids or my wife. I didn't have a choice. It's one of these philosophical Dilemmas. Well, I know who would let go. I definitely know who would let go, and, and we we have we have used this scenario as well. So, yeah, I would I would I wouldn't hesitate. I'd let go of my kids, um, and I think that that fundamentally is one of the big problems. That now my wife wouldn't want me to let go of my kids, but I wouldn't hesitate because she's more important to me than all of my kids put together. And I think one of the things in our societies that we've done, especially Western society, is we put our kids in front of our spouse. And I think that's a huge mistake. And, you know, it's funny, if, if your dad is a murderer, let's say, and he goes to prison, you're still going to go to prison and visit him and say, Daddy, I love you. You're an amazing dad. You made some poor choices. Um, it's probably not the best analogy, uh, but you're always going to, for the most part, have a relationship and love your parents. But when you put kids in front of the spouse and they make and you make them more important, it always causes problems. Um, maybe not devastating problems, but I think if we double down on our relationships with our spouses, um, you're just always going to have a good relationship with your kid. Yeah, and because, I think by modeling that behavior um the, towards of love and affection and caring towards your spouse but that's that the most down, important thing yeah most important down thing to the kids know. yeah it's watching a, a a hospital drama you know not that nothing has been made at the moment so it's a repeat <laughs> um would you choose the life of the, the, the baby being born or the survival of the woman and it's yeah. the baby being born you know but it and I would say you, my wife would say it's a baby. And, and, 
but I think it's if you show that true compassion and the love within a family, it, the kids notice this and that, that helps them because we talk about your kids become you. We want them to be in a relationship that is loving instead of abusive relationship mm. as well. Yeah. yeah. And they can pick up a lot of those ways that we treat our spouses um, out of our own selfish needs and desires. And, you know, to be very conscious of those things um, and to make those sacrifices for your spouse um, who is not genetically part of you. Um, and you can make those, you know, choices. Um, I think there's nothing more beautiful that you could model. You know, the but other thing that, go ahead. The other thing as well is that, that why do relationships end? Because the, peer, the other person says that, that, and I've said this before in different shows, that it's because you say the other person has changed. They yeah. haven't changed. They've just gone back to be the person they originally were. <laughs> and they jacked up to this, oh, I'm wonderful or whatever. And you fall in love with this. Oh, yeah. And then after a while, they just drop back to the same person. And the other person goes, you've changed. They haven't. And, but when you meet someone of who you are with no high expectations, that's when the beautiful relationship starts. Mm. So yeah. remove the falseness and have the reality and yeah. it will blossom. Well, unfortunately, when we meet people, we, uh, we lie to them about who we are. We tell them about all the awesome stuff and then we meet them and then we marry them and we move in together and then they figure out who we really are. <laughs> yeah, no, that was for us. It was, it was straight from the start. So that's why Good. it's, it's, it's blessing on it. Going back to, um, Joe, let me, let me just tell you one other quick little thing that we spend a lot of time doing because this might give you something else. Um, I'm sure you had something really good to say there, but I just wanted to mention it because you talked about this dinner table and some of the deep work that we do is around empathy. Um, we have spent years talking about empathy activation uh, in the U.S. Empathy has been nearly cut in half in the last 30 years in our high school to college bound children. And we know intuitively that that's empathy is important. Um, however, remember when I asked you what was the name of that kid who wasn't treated the right way when you were in school, that that kid had a 40 to 50% better chance of receiving empathy from his or her peer. Now that's devastating in today's world. So a lot of the work that we do is around empathy and why has it declined? And we could talk about that for hours. And how do we reactivate empathy? And one of the things I'll tell you, one of the deep things we do is we do a lot of circle work. And it's that dinner table, because we know that in a circle, empathy, you can activate empathy if the circle is used correctly. They say that humans developed fire about a million and a half years ago. And somewhere around 400,000 years ago, something unbelievable, this is going to blow your mind when I tell you this, and something happened. Humans sat around this fire, one person talked, everybody else leaned forward, and they, you want me to say listened? And they listened. <laughs> like, that's the most amazing I, thing that has I, ever I, happened in humanity. We listen to each other. And we have gotten away from that and listening and taking perspective and watching people that helps grow empathy. And unfortunately our children spend half of their time in this two dimensional world um, and not in a three dimensional world. 
Now, I don't diss technology because we know, and John Medina says that there are facets of even social media that can help a kid grow in empathy, in both cognitive and affective empathy, because like for some kids, it's the first time that they've ever been able to share. There's some kids that won't share, but if they're in their bedroom, they'll be able to share appropriately. And other kids can watch certain kids talk about things and they can say, oh, wow, I thought I was the only one that felt that way. So there are good facets of technology that can help a kid empathetically. But the truth is the mass amount of time, nine to 11 hours a day in a two-dimensional world just doesn't let a human, and this has only been the last 25 years this has changed, in all of human history. So you got to think deeply about that one. Um, okay, so- well, what what's happened at the moment is I talk about as well, and a lot of people with COVID-19, which has come around the world, and a lot of people have seen a lot of opportunities from the adult perspective and there's a lot of compassion and there's a lot of empathy i've seen a lot of divide and i've seen people have i have been shocked that i have seen some people have no empathy at all it shocked me but i've also seen so many people have compassion as well um i always just thought empathy was something that we all had and i've seen now there's courses being run on empathy because people don't know how to empathize. And I'm kind of going, oh my God, this this is this is just a, a human nature. Mm. So, it was human nature. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm yeah. I'm shocked that it's it needs to be taught again. That's that's the whole it's like ethics and where is it with like in Ireland we you know Ireland is education system as in crime and violence and everything is is 10 years behind america the stuff that you're doing like how many kids have you spoken to in the last 10 years it, it, like it must be hundreds of thousands that you've spoken oh i think to i, I think I, I might have briefly mentioned this but you know my partner my speaking partner rick 70 percent uh, yeah. of rick's body was instantly burned away in iraq that's right yeah. um yeah. And, uh, you know, I call Rick one of the world's hope experts. And uh, Rick and I have crisscrossed um, North America, uh, f- you know, from Houston to, if you know your geography in the U.S., uh, that's in Texas, uh, out to Hawaii, which I'd be surprised if you didn't know where that was, um, all the way to Montreal. Um, so we, we've, we've gone into Canada uh, with this message, and uh, we typically are in anywhere from 100 to 120 schools per school year. Um, which is a lot. It puts us on the road about 200 days a year uh, for the last, uh, really since about 2013, we've been at that pace. Um, but over the last 10 or 12 years, we've, we've spoken to, you know, well over 2 million students, parents, and teachers, because a lot of the work that we do, um, it, mo- the majority of it is with students, but over the last couple of years, we've just been doing a, a, a a mass amount of professional development with teachers and parents. Here's a question then. Is it just a drop in the ocean or is it really, really making a difference? Listen, uh, there's a lots of ways I can answer that question. You know, um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, said that every human is the center of the universe. Right. And so for me, if you, if you change one person's life, uh, you've changed the center of the universe. And so it, it, 
that's how you change the world is by affecting one person at a time. And I think it was Mother Teresa said, never worry about the numbers. Uh, just help the person next to you and you'll change the world. So it's tough, man. It's, it, I, I think maybe what you're kind of implying is um, the way, the tidal wave is so big um, with what's happening in our world today that it's just, it, it feels like you're, you're in the midst of a giant ocean and there's no land in sight. Okay, let me let me let me ask you this then. The schools that you go into, do they see a change in the mental state of the kids after you leave? And does the bullying drop? Well, so there's a couple of ways to answer that. Every time I go into a school, if I'm there for one reason, and that's to affect one kid that feels hopeless we've done our job. And I know that for that purpose, we have a kid that's thinking about going home and making a destructive decision to hurt themselves, to hurt someone else. And I have literally thousands of, uh, have had thousands of conversations or connections with young people that said, this changed my life forever. This one-time event. Um, I don't encourage a one-time event, we have programs. We have a program called Braves, B-R-A-V-E-S, that we put into place because like anything, you're dealing with children. So you need space, repetitive practice. You, and I'll go right back to the math thing that I said to you earlier. You don't just say, hey, I'm going to teach you one calculus problem. Good luck. Um, that's your training for the rest of your life. So you'd never do that to a young person in the terms of social emotional development. So there are core competencies in social emotional development. When you look at the science of it, you have self-awareness and self-management and social awareness and re building relationship skills. Those things take practice. And we used to build a lot of those things in self-directed, self-controlled play or other things like sitting around a dinner table. So the challenge is how do you inject those things into the education system, especially in Western education? Because it's really about getting a kid to take advance this and advance that and get involved in this and get involved in that. Um, and just piling it up, which is raised the anxiety and frustration levels of kids, which is now the number one thing kids face today is anxiety. It's now replaced depression, which is really devastating because anxiety deals with the future and you have kids just, you know, dwelling on this emotional state that they're going to always be in like it's and a kid even can't with, grow that way yeah it's like it's even you know performance anxiety with exams and everything is is very big over here but it, i think the stuff that you are doing is equipping the children even though they mightn't realize it now but it's equipping them for the future when they're in work because one of the things that's happening as well in the world is there's and we're jumping to this is the bullying in the workplace. You know, when we think of bullying, people think kids, they think, you know, they think it's all it's going on. But there's a bullying element in a workplace, which is devastating, really devastating to families, uh, because the especially with the males that are being bullied, feel that they they're that this shouldn't be happening to me because I'm not a child. But it is, and it's. I think it's something that needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed fairly quickly as well. 
you know, I'm glad you brought this up because you mentioned it in the beginning and I don't do enough in this space. I wish I did more because we have a lot of value to add. It's just that my time is so consumed with young people. Um, but this is what I say, you know, you know, at younger ages, I don't know if there's bullying in first or second grade. I, I speak to that a lot. Um, there's certainly bully behavior, but, you know, mommy calls daddy stupid. Daddy hits mommy. Kid comes to school, calls people stupid and hits them. I don't know if he or she is bullying anyone, but we do know that in the fifth grade, we say in the U.S., the mean switch goes on 11, 12, 13. And that's when the propensity for bullying really starts to take off. And then in about the eighth or the ninth grade, 15, something like that, um, it really peaks. And then it certainly is in high school. It becomes a little bit more violent, um, either physically or verbally. Um, it takes a real uh, malicious twist, um, you know, when we get technology and things involved. And then this really curious thing happens. Kids go to university or college, the ones that do, and bullying nearly goes away. Now, there's some of those cases like Matthew Shepard, um, where they're really ugly and devastating. But kids will then in college or when they first leave high school or mom and dad, they gravitate to a group of people that they're similar with that are just going to pretty much uh, support each other. But then kids get in the workplace in their early 20s and it comes back with vicious a vengeance. And I have a restaurant, 40 employees. And in a place where I talk about empathy and compassion and all of these things, it doesn't matter. You have older servers because you have to look at what bullying is, right? If you look at the word and you analyze it, it's a, a bully is a blustering, quarrelsome, overbearing person who habitually, intentionally badges smaller, weaker people. And you say, whoa, wait a minute. There's four things, right? Number one, it has to be habitual. Number two, there has to be fear or intimidation. That's like the signature of bullying. And that's what you're talking about. So it's habitually intimidating someone that, now listen to the word I'm going to use, feels, I didn't say they were, smaller or weaker. And you say, well, what does smaller or weaker mean? For kids especially, it means anything, right? I met a young lady that was prettier than everybody else. And some people would scoff at that. But that was Hannah Baker's issue on 13 Reasons Why. But I've met several of those young ladies. When she gets that label in high school that, you know, she's the tramp of the school, like that's a really difficult thing for a young lady that's just trying to figure out who she is, that she'll do anything with anybody. So it might be an easy target, like your dad's in prison or you don't have a lot of money, you live in a trailer, but it really could mean anything. So bullying is being mean or scaring someone, fear, habitually, that's the programming. The person has to feel smaller or weaker, right? And that means anything because we all have a different thing that makes us feel smaller or weaker. And last, it's an intentional act. So if you look at it through the eyes of older people that may have already had these issues, especially, and I do a lot in the world of trauma, because being trauma-informed and transforming trauma is extremely important because once you have that baggage and then you think you might get over it, but you take it into the workplace, becomes very different because you're 
might even be living off of that trauma as a child. But when you get into the workplace, you'll find people that are intimidated on a habitual basis. They're made to feel smaller, weaker, and it's intentional. I think the first thing we have to do is start to recognize some of those aspects of bullying in the workplace. And then we have to come up with ways to address it. Um, and obviously the number one way to address it is to have conversations with me and to start to figure out why people are doing these things. And, and we know, you know, psychologically why people treat people the wrong way. That's easy, but it's not so easy when it's like on the way to the water cooler or it's being done, you know, behind someone's back. Uh, because it doesn't certainly have to be done directly to someone's face. Um, bullying and, you know, indirect bullying and the way we treat people can certainly have grave implications uh, in many different forms. That's a, a, a job um, for a couple of months, um, it, probably in my early 40s or so. And I was bullied um, by a person who actually they... For me, I, I could see it. It was being happened and I was kind of going, what, what is going on here? Confronting them didn't work when mm. higher owners or managers were there. They play nice to you. But when they were gone, they were mean and were, were stopping you from continuing on your work and making it difficult. That's my mind from the outcome. So yeah. I go about living in the moment now, not knowing where it's going to bring me, but know it's going to bring, bring me somewhere quite nice on it you must it. be a good student of like seneca or plutarch or some of those early stoics right yeah no it's, they were um, able to do that finding a belief in myself an inner an yeah. inner wisdom ask you know all the questions are within on it but look sweethearts and heroes um one of the things i love as well is you know the the mma fighter yeah with the <laughs> with the painted nails and you yeah. know, and and i remember you brought i seen you bring that out a couple of years ago and i laughed it says uh, good good run tall good and that is you know the 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 guy i'm i'm cool because i have a painted nail and that's shown the vulnerability um, yeah. that that we have as well so I, you know, I always, I always love that we could bring that training and, and that system that you have to Europe because I really believe it. And yeah. I believe what you guys are doing is, is so right. And um, what would you say to a parent or, a, you know, who's listening now? Um, I know we're running out of time here, but what would you say to a parent that is concerned about their kids being bullied or is a bully? Well, you know, one of the first things I always tell parents is don't make the mortal mistake of ever telling your kids to just ignore it. Like that's a really easy thing for a parent to say is just ignore it. And that's easy for your brain. That's fully developed, right? That prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex. Well, yours and mine is still <laughs> in massive development, but it's an easy thing. And sometimes we lose sight that these brains are half developed. I like to tell parents, I say, do you know why kids do everything that they do? Like 99% of everything that your kids, you know, in middle school, elementary school, do you know why they do it? And mom's like, well, tell me, I, I need to know. I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to blow your mind. You ready for this? 99% of everything that your kid and why they do it. You ready? Because they feel like it. Yeah. And moms usually laugh at that. But 
Um, it's the truth. I mean, that's the part of a kid's brain that's operating fully, right? They operate on their feelings. That prefrontal cortex hasn't been fully developed or connected. And we try and op- tell our kids to do things like they're adults, but they're not. And a lot of times we just lose sight of that. And I think if a parent can center on that first and say, okay, I got to have some patience. I got to understand that this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And if mom and dad can be mindful and they can practice some of those techniques like breathing um, and just understanding that their kid may not be able to handle the situations like like I, I, when dad say, just punch the kid in the nose. I mean, like what a terrible piece of advice. A kid is in like limbic state shutdown mode because of the anxiety and the stress that's going on because of the way they're being, being treated and everything else that's going on in their life. And you think a kid's just going to be able to do that. So I think we give some very well intended advice because we love our kids and we want to protect them. Um, but I think having a better understanding of our children and the state that their brains are in, especially because of how they've changed. I mean, there's a great book called the shallows written by, um, uh, I forget the guy's name, but it's called the shallows. It's, it's pretty technical, but he says that the brain of the of children is wired differently than any brain in human history today. Especially at teenage, they have like one of the reasons we talked about earlier on, but kids have a a chemical imbalance that rushes through them when they're going through puberty as well, which makes them insane. Yeah. 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 And we're just telling kids to ignore things. So, I mean, I could give days worth of uh, content um, to parents. Uh, I have a little series that we did um, on our YouTube channel for parents just answering some of these questions, like, what do you do when my kid's being treated the wrong way? What do you do when my kid starts treating people the wrong way? So, uh, you know, to, to put it in a nutshell, I think one of the most important things you can do is listen to your children. That's a really, really difficult thing to do. I know that because I screwed it up a thousand times, yeah. but I tell parents all the time, I say, understanding your children and their behavior is not condoning their behavior. So understanding is not condoning, but really try and understand and make sure you listen because it's really easy to give adult advice to a kid who doesn't even have a formed brain yet. Yeah. True. Sweethearts and Heroes. Is it.com? Yeah. Sweethearts.com. And then the YouTube channel as well. Yeah. So- Facebook, YouTube, all that jazz. We I we could talk for hours for some. Well, I, I will we, tell you, we, Joe. We do we, have a maybe. I'll maybe I'll shoot this to you, but we have a brand new digital series out. When COVID hit, we we were in fifty schools, Rick and I, before in the beginning of the U.S. school year, um, we shut down. We had to cancel fifty schools. We took to the digital waves, and we had about a hundred different uh, online presentations uh, at the end of last school year, and we teamed up. Um, it's funny because the new um, documentary, what is it called? The Social Dilemma. Um, it's uh, made it on to Netflix. Netflix my, yeah. My, yeah. Scary. My buddy and my guy's name is uh, Orlovsky, I think. And my buddy, Andrew, who lives in Boulder, Colorado, worked with him on um, 
his last documentary, which was called Chasing Coral. And my buddy, Andrew uh, Ackerman, uh, brilliant filmmaker. He was actually in all of Chasing Coral and uh, filmed uh, underwater for the whole uh, documentary. But Andrew has actually made a series called Our Hope Series. And um, we have dozens of schools that have already started using it in the US um, to supplement. It's a nine part series where kids use a thing called Flipgrid, which I'm in love with Flipgrid. It's a Microsoft product, but it gives every kid a voice and allows them to watch some of our content that we would do in schools, but it lets them respond directly to the videos as well as to their peers. And, and this is all on the, on the website as well. Yeah, yeah, it's our new hope series. We're just being careful to not promote it too big yet because we want to make sure that it's, uh, it's really solidly operating. Tom Murphy, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, buddy. Talk to you soon. And remember, here at Dublin South FM, we're interviewing plenty of people around the world, conscious leaders, and that's why we have the Conscious Business Podcast, which is part of the Conscious Business Academy, offering purpose, profit, and prosperity in your life through soulful selling, mindful marketing, conscious leadership, and creative culture. If you want to reach out to me, it's joedalton.ie. You have an awesome week, and take care and look after yourself. You're listening to Joe Dalton on Dublin South FM, crossing the Rubicon.